This is the Leaders Who Learn podcast, produced by Claremont Lincoln University. This podcast highlights the dimensions of leadership urgently needed today, the collaboration necessary for leading well, and the ways to tap the leader within each of us. Interviews showcase ethical and humble leaders who listen, learn, and build a legacy of gratitude, service, and transparency in their businesses and communities. Our hosts, Dr. Joanna Bauer and Dr. Lynn Pretty get into the specifics with each guest, and we ask questions that need to be answered about ethical leadership and leading in today's society. Now, let's hear from our hosts. Welcome back to the Leaders Who Learn podcast produced by Claremont Lincoln University, a university focused on socially conscious education and mindful leadership. In fact, we're exploring new, different, and urgently needed forms of leadership. I'm Dr. Lynn Pretty. And I'm Dr. Joanna Bauer. We're your hosts. Today, we've been waiting for this interview, folks. You can read his bio already. We're engaging with a retiring Deputy Chief of Police, Trevor Womack. Like you, we have questions on how we find a healing path amidst the pain we see in social unrest. Trevor has great insight. He's from the Stockton Police Department, one of only six to be named to the National Initiative Exploring Ways to Rethink Law Enforcement. After talking with him a few weeks ago, I knew we had to feature him on this podcast. Welcome, Trevor. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. So before we jump into your thinking on leadership, tell us a little bit about this national initiative, Stockton, you know, where you have lived your law enforcement life. What's it all about there? Uh, we were you know, fortunate enough to be selected uh, as part of the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice, uh, which was basically a DOJ COPS funded study to test out um, three main components, I would say. So built, especially around building trust with community. So procedural justice, uh, racial reconciliation framework, and implicit bias, and how those can uh, be used um, to increase trust or in some ways how maybe implicit bias could be used or sometimes a roadblock roadblock to building trust with the community. So we were kind of a petri dish in Stockton here along with five other sites across the nation to test out those concepts in a real practical way in a law enforcement agency. So it sounds like exactly what's really needed. So what did you learn? Is it working? Where's the project now? Where's your thinking now? having been through that project? Uh, my thinking personally changed. Of course, it's changed a lot over the years. It's been about 29 years a year now in my career. So my thinking is definitely different now than it was when I started. Um, but in this sense, I really view trust building um, as one of the primary focuses, or needs to be one of the primary focuses for our profession, for any law enforcement agency. And, and traditionally, we're very good at crime fighting, right? When it comes to law enforcement. Sure, sure. We fight crime. And we've always done, I believe, community policing where we had relationship building efforts with our community. Um, but I think now this goes deeper um, to very intentional trust building efforts, specifically within um, communities or areas of the community or segments of the community that tend to trust us the least but need us the most. Um, disadvantaged communities that are high impacted, especially by violent crime, uh, 
the efforts to build trust in those communities need to be intentional and they need to be um, as much of a focus as traditional crime fighting, if not more nowadays, because uh, I believe that building trust with your community lowers crime. Um, but sometimes I think it's a chicken and egg thing, which comes first, does lowering crime increase your legitimacy and the trust with the community or does building trust with the community lower crime? And I think the answer to that is yes, because both have to happen at the same time. So, so just before I turn it over to Joanna here, what, so if you could recreate um, the percentage of time you spend in terms of crime fighting and trust building, what, what's the ideal mix? I think the, uh, you can't separate the two at all. So I think you have to infuse your trust building efforts into everything that you do. So it's not like you're, oh, I'm spending time building trust now. No, you're spending all your time building trust while you're doing your regular jobs. So I think it's completely blended. I don't think you separate it out at all. That's, that's just such a different, different perspective. So, so just, so then for new police officers or even folks like you, what's the most critical attribute of being a leader in law enforcement? I think it has to be um, doable. No, it's, it's a tough question, tough, tough question. <laughs> it can be two or three. Mm -hmm. And it was about an attribute or it was? Uh... Yeah, or let's pause, I'll give you a minute to think and we'll come back there in a second, three. Because I threw you a curve there. I was just really interested. <laughs> so let me pause three seconds. So Trevor, if you had to really think about law enforcement software, law enforcement, blah, 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 we'll start one more time. <laughs> so, so Trevor, if we really had to think about law enforcement officers right now, what are the most important attributes of the leaders of law enforcement officers? Deputy Chiefs of Police, Chiefs of Police, what do, they, what do they need to be to get us to where we need to go? I think they have to have a high amount of empathy and be willing to listen and engage and really listen and not just look to some of the traditional things that we've done in law enforcement before, which were, uh, I almost look at them like checking boxes at this point. Maybe we have a Citizens Academy, for example, um, you know, and check the box that we're building trust with our community. From, from my experience, for example, not that Citizen Academ Academies are bad. Um, you know, it's a way to educate the public about what we do and who we are. But the, the typical um, community members that will engage through a Citizens Academy are a lot of times folks that are already interested in law enforcement or already have hold law enforcement in high regard. Um, so you're, you're not you're not actually getting to where uh, the real conversation needs to happen. So I think when I say it's in our trust building efforts have to be intentional, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's not check the box type of work. It's um, a process that you're going to go through. that's never ending um, digging as deeply as possible to get to the root causes of the distrust that exists. Uh, that's such, I love that the roots of the distrust that exists. Okay, Joanna, jump in here. Yeah, this leads directly to um, kind of my question about 
how do we, as a society, how do we understand what's happening between communities and police right now? Um, I'm sure you have a pulse on this in your, in your position. I mean, obviously the unrest is palpable, but how do we move forward? You said the vision of community trust, and of course that leads to social justice. How do we move forward to get to that vision? Um, I think at the heart of all of us, we all, we're so much more alike than different. Mm -hmm. And I know this is obvious, but I think now with, with social media and politics as they are, it's really driving people apart. It is. Uh, and it's either, everything's either black or white, a right answer or a wrong answer. Mm -hmm. um, in my <laughs> practical experience, the answer is always somewhere in between. Um, and people have a lot of common interests. We all want safe communities. We want less violence in our communities. We want our children to go up, grow up in an area where um, they feel safe and respected and treated fairly. We all share those values and want those things. So there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot more in common than we have different. And mm -hmm. so it's creating those spaces, being very intentional about trying to create the spaces where those conversations can happen. Um, we get past some of the noise, um, and some of the rhetoric, and we can actually try to find some common ground to move forward on. Mm. So taking that into education, as we're educators, you educate in your role and also the community as well. Um, we also have a new um, MPA program. So we're thinking in terms of how do we educate for what's needed now? What, what else don't we know? What should we know from your perspective as a leader in law enforcement or emergency management or public safety? I think that um, <laughs> maybe education could be another area where we create spaces for those conversations to happen and, mm -hmm. and different perspectives to be shared. Mm -hmm. uh, so instead of a cohort of just law enforcement professionals going through a program, for example, <laughs> it would be nice to be mixed with varied perspectives mm. to maybe encourage some of those conversations and the sharing of ideas and, and finding that common ground that I was talking about. We're, we're actually, we're good at that in some ways because we have what we call common classes where we bring uh, students from the different programs into those common classes. And you're right, we find that is that mixing is really important. But I think what I'm hearing, I think what I'm hearing Trevor say is you would just love us to host conversations throughout our communities where police, go ahead. It could be helpful to have, um, a neutral third party mm -hmm. together and facilitate a conversation. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that as part of the national initiative we went through, the, the framework for racial reconciliation that we walked through was very insightful for me. And it was more Chief Eric Jones than me personally involved in that. And you know, he's a good friend of mine. He's the one that uh, selected me as a deputy chief. Um, and I've worked with him for my whole career. I have huge respect for the man. So um, we think a lot alike on this. And I got to observe very closely and support the efforts that he was engaged in for racial reconciliation. And the framework that we employed um, off the top of my head basically involved um, some deep listening. So creating small spaces, very small groups. And what we found here too is that it's difficult <laughs> in today's era to host, for example, a town hall meeting. 
Right. right? You're really going to have a conversation during a town hall meeting. You're going to get people from different quote unquote sides that come up and are, are you know, voice their opinions, sometimes in very vocal, loud ways. Uh, and there's no conversation that happens. So with this effort, it was much more about small listening sessions with just three to five people um, from across the community with the chief and um, a point for the, for the chief at that point to acknowledge the, the history that we carry with us in this uniform and this badge, um, acknowledge some of the past harms um, you know, committed by law enforcement that maybe we weren't personally part of. They happened long before we were born, um, but that we still carry that with us when we wear this badge in this uniform. And sort of that acknowledgement of that history uh, would, would tend to break down the barriers and begin to open up the conversations and then turn it over into complete listening where we asked for the community to tell us what their personal experiences were, their personal experiences were with the Stockton Police Department throughout their lives. Um, and then there was a process through those meetings. There was many, many of those little listening sessions held of capturing narratives, but mm -hmm. anonymously, of course, right? But the themes that we teased out of all those meetings. And there's things that came up about, you know, um, encounters with law enforcement during traffic stops or, or searches of their homes or how people were spoken to in front of family members. And these themes emerged. And then from that, you're able to take that back that new insight that you have and that deeper understanding of the community's perspective and the history and use that as a decision maker to inform your policies, practices, and procedures. Mm -hmm. And so that process that we went through, that, that's a lot of work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not checking a box. <laughs> that's, no. that's several years of work by the chief of police himself investing a large amount of time um, and then the whole organization coming behind that to incorporate that into changing culture and policies, practices, and procedures. So that's the kind of work that I think needs to happen within our profession to move it forward. I think gathering those narratives is, is really important and just to give voice. And then of course we do know that that's a, a long-term project. Lynn, did you wanna jump in? Sure, so, so Trevor, for those who don't know Stockton, who are listening to the podcast or, or chime in, tell us about Stockton, typical crime, typical population, demographics. Well, Stockton's right in the heart of the Central Valley in California, so we're about 45 minutes south of Sacramento, and, and uh, we are uh, surrounded by agriculture, you know, uh, San Joaquin Valley's got a huge agricultural component, and but Stockton, our population's about 320,000 people now, um, and we've always been plagued with, uh, with a crime problem in Stockton, you know, there's specifically street violence, violent crime, uh, quote unquote gangs, groups, uh, guns, narcotics problems have contributed to a problem with, with gun violence in our community for generations. So and it's a gritty town, but there's a lot of beauty inside this town too. Um, but we just kind of have this reputation, I think, that, that covers up some of that beauty that exists too. Yeah, I wanted folks to hear that because I wanted them to understand what it is you and the the chief of police, Eric Jones, right? Who, um, who, with all of these conversations and the need to replicate those over and over. In fact, you have actually researched gun violence and data and are presenting on the topic with people, places, and data. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we developed, a, um, you know, with this, the chief's vision, um, we developed 
a new policing philosophy, basically, with, with um, two pillars of the philosophy, one being smarter policing and one being principled policing. And smarter policing, there's some overlap there, but smarter policing is about really trying to be smart the way we police, right, as the name implies. So intelligence-led, evidence-based strategies, uh, being data-driven, and really being strategic with our service delivery. Uh, and then the other pillar, principle policing, is much more about who we are as people, as, as an organization, our character, our values. So uh, it's about trust and legitimacy in the eyes of the public. So that's our new policing philosophy that's in place. And then as part of that, we developed uh, an approach towards reducing gun violence in line with those two pillars. And there's an area-based component to that and a people-based component to that. So you can think of it like hot places and with your high risk oh. for gun crime and hot people, individuals that are very high risk for, for either being a victim of gun crime or committing gun crime. Um, so I talk about, I'm gonna talk about in a presentation how we use those two strategies and they're both infused with procedural justice at the same time to impact gun violence in Stockton. So this goes back to your quote, um, the people who hate you the most also need you the most. Yes, I can't, I don't know for sure who coined the phrase. I've heard it a few times, but I like it because it seems, it does seem so perfect that, um, you know, and when you think about it, and I'm from Stockton and I, I care about this community and there's just, even in my lifetime and anybody in Stockton I think who's lived here long enough has been impacted by violent crime in some way. Uh, if not personally, they, they know somebody or they've definitely seen it and been exposed to it um, and it's in the media a lot. And we, I think as a community, me as a person, we're, we're just tired of it. It's, it's draining. And um, young men in our community are being ripped away. And mm. I think about it in that way that they're being ripped away by gun violence, you know, whether you're buried in the ground six feet under or whether you're serving uh, an extended sentence in prison, you're gone from this community. And so I look at it like we're tired of not just the violence, but we're also tired of young men being gone, period. So we want to try to find a way to impact that violence with um, as, as little uh, reliance upon arrest and incarceration as possible. Because we need those young men here in the community, <laughs> alive and free, as part of the solution here, not the problem. So that's, that's where I come from this now. My perspective is how I approach these strategies that we're using. And, and can you tell us a little bit of, uh, about a couple of those strategies? Sure. So one, uh, we call it ceasefire here in Stockton, but it's, and it's not new or unique to Stockton. I think we've um, refined and polished it you know, a bit and been a little innovative, but it goes back to the Boston ceasefire model. Um, and so it's been around for, for decades. And it's really about group violence intervention. And that's our kind of our hot people <laughs> strategy. And there's a whole process that we go through regarding that, um, which starts with basically an, an analysis of the problem, a continual analysis of the problem to identify the gangs or groups in Stockton that are at highest risk. And then even more importantly, within those subsets of people, the individuals that are at very high risk, you know, the young men in our community that are at the highest risk of shooting or being shot, um, mm -hmm. trying to identify those men. And then working on a strategy to lower that risk. And that begins, 
you know, in a perfect sense, the perfect flow here would be through a direct respectful conversation or communication of the risk to that individual. And we can, we accomplish that by two primary means, either a call in, where it's a pretty uh, large production that's planned for several months. Uh, wow. Guys of five, between five to 15 of these very high risk guys are invited in and brought into a room and there's a law enforcement voice, a community voice and a service provider voice, um, different people from those voices. But the risk is expressed to those young men and then they're offered some services um, on the spot and tried to connect into outreach and services right there. So that's, or another way that happens is more um, personal conversations that happen in more real time because violence changes quickly. So sometimes you need to uh, be very nimble with your strategy. So a faster way to communi communicate that message that you can pull together within a day is bringing young, inviting a young man in and having a conversation with, for example, me as a law enforcement executive, um, a supervisor from Office of Violence Prevention Peacekeepers, which is our outreach service providers, and a community member for, let's say, a mother who lost a son to gun violence, for example. Mm. And that risk can be expressed to them in a small setting like that, um, again, with an officer, offer of real services as well. So that's kind of the direct respectful communication piece. Um, and then there's the development of those supportive relationships, hopefully for better outcomes, right, to lower the risk and provide some safety and some opportunities for those men. And then the final piece would be very narrow, focused, procedurally just enforcement, um, narrowly targeted just on those who continue in the violence because ultimately the violence has to stop. I mean, ultimately I look at it like a last resort for the arrest to happen, but ultimately the violence has to stop, it can't continue. But the process that we go through to get there um, reduces the risk of even arrest at the end, right? And it's, and it's more fair and just as we go through that mm. process. So that's, in a nutshell, that's kind of the cycle that we go through for ceasefire or group violence intervention and, and deal with the, quote, hot people uh, at risk for gun violence. What do, you need, what do you need from us, Trevor? What do you need from the average citizen to understand or to do with police? What, could, what help could you use from the, just the everyday community, our students, our listeners, yeah, I think if, uh, like, for example, you, you, you probably didn't have any idea that we're doing that. Nope, that's exactly that's right. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. And it's the kind of work where, obviously, I can't bring a television camera into the room while I'm having a confidential meeting with a young man who's very high risk and offering him services and telling him from a law enforcement professional that, um, that I care about him and I don't want him to be shot and killed or go to prison. Mm -hmm. I, that, that's the, the kind of conversations that were happening but it's all kind of behind the scenes and it's lost in the noise that's going on in the politics and social media. So I think for one thing, it would be nice to, for people to know that some agencies like Stockton are engaged in that work yeah. and the occasional exactly. tragic event that you see where some young man is you know, shot in a law enforcement encounter, or there's some type of use of force that looks really bad on camera. That's just such a small, you know, um, amount of the context that we have with the community and there's so much other work going on that that is positive um, and it's really making a difference and so it would be nice to try to just get that information out but uh, we're so busy <laughs> to be honest with you it's, it's all consuming just doing the work it's hard to um, yeah to communicate it often to the community because you're just so engaged in the actual work 
So I guess the answer is trying to educate people what some of these best practices are and these emerging strategies around trust building. To me too, ceasefire is like procedural justice and trust building in action. So you can read about trust building and these concepts and these theories, but in a very pragmatic sense, this is what it is. This is trust building. This is fighting crime while building trust at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's these concepts put into action. Joanna. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking about uh, what you're doing individually. And what occurs to me is how that's creating such a, a positive foundation community-wide. I mean, all, everything you're putting into place now and all the time and energy you're taking is just generations of that ceasefire. And, and like you said, really putting that into action. I think that's so important for people to understand as far as that building that, that long-term community um, of not having young men, uh, as you said, away, <laughs> however they are away. But going back to, so you are uh, retiring <laughs> in this particular yes. element of your career. When you look back, what's the, the key thing? You mentioned that you have a different perspective now than you did when you were younger. What's the key thing you've learned? And do you know what you're going to do next? Are you going to kind of stay in the trajectory of, of what you started with community building? Where, where's, where are you going next? Uh, First part, I think one of the key things I've learned is that you know, we need to measure what matters and assess ourselves and the community needs to hold us accountable to yeah. what matters. And so if, for example, if your goal is to reduce gun violence, improve public safety by having less shootings in your community, then you can't just measure a bunch of inputs, right? Like, yeah. Exactly. How many traffic stops have we made in this area because there's a lot of gun violence here? Or how many, how many arrests have we made this year and celebrate the fact that we arrested 13% more people when your shootings are still happening um, and violence is still happening? There's no, so you need to completely reassess um, what you measure and then go back from there. So measure the number of shootings and then go back from there. Only measure the inputs and value the inputs that contribute to reduces in shooting shooting in the correct way, obviously, right? Procedural adjust ways. <laughs> um, but so I think there's a being much more evidence-based and assessing ourselves well, and it's a community would hold us accountable to that. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's kind of the new perspective that I have on it. And as far as what's next, I'm really not sure yet. I, I know I've, I do um, teach just a little bit at the police academy right now, so I, I'd like to do some more of that. That's fun. Maybe I can kind of impart some new perspective to the mm -hmm. next generation of officers that are coming on. Um, and then maybe a little bit of consulting work here and there where I can, because I still like these topics that I'm talking about now, <laughs> continuing to learn and develop, um, but I'm going to have to find a way to do that you know, outside of this uniform and badge. Well, I have to ask the question uh, with, with all that you're working on with um, ceasefire and community building and and then you were talking about um, the the community holding you accountable how does COVID fit into the situation does it make it better or worse in your experience it's been such a challenge like it has been for everyone mm -hmm. 
Um, interestingly here for us, purely crime-wise, <laughs> property crime has dropped pretty dramatically. I think. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because people are at home, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense, right? When you think of course, yeah. <laughs> Less businesses are open for theft and more yeah. people are home, so burglaries aren't happening. And so there's um, property crime is, has dropped off as it would, would seem like makes sense. Um, it seems like domestic violence incidents have increased and I think mm, that, yeah. that makes sense as well, tragically. Um, uh, but then how do you function? You know, a lot of the community engagement work we were doing was face-to-face meetings with the community. Right. And that all had to stop. So we've been doing a lot of WebEx meetings or Zoom meetings and, and trying to do that, but it's just not quite the same. We do want to get back out into the community again. We've been managing as best we can in that virtual room. So Lynn, anything else? You ready for the last question? Yeah, no, go for the last question. <laughs> well, yes, yes. So one thing, you know, I was I in the one question you're, you know, you said there's so that that what people don't know, and, and it definitely in social media and on TV and everything else, it you would think to the general public that the vast majority of law enforcement um, officers are committing all sorts of injustices weekly or monthly you're a data person in Stockton. What's the, do you, can you give us any sense of the percentages? I, I, and maybe you can't. Well, I can, uh, you know, I don't know the exact percentages off the top of my head, but, but I do know some information that puts it in perspective a bit. So on average in Stockton, we handle 1000 calls for service a day. Um, so that's at least, right? <laughs> Just 1, in our okay. system, that's at least 1,000 contacts with our community that we're handling every day. Mm. And, you know, we don't get 1,000 complaints a day, that's for sure. <laughs> and we don't get 1,000 negative videos a day. So there's so much work going on that is positive and that is done properly and well. Um, and, of course, occasionally there's mistakes that are made, right? Um, but that's those are unique, and they're small and few, far and few between, actually. So... To, to put it in perspective a little bit, we just we handle an enormous call volume, um, and there's literally thousands of contacts with the community occurring every day, and the vast vast majority of those are positive and, and have no problem whatsoever. And it's to our officers' credit, I, I really have a deep appreciation for the work they do in our town. It's extremely busy, and they do confront real danger every day, um, and I've seen. You also don't, what else you don't hear about is you don't hear about incidents that are successfully de-escalated, right? Mm, so right. About yeah. need for de-escalation training and officers need to use better tactics, and, but you never hear about all the times that officers actually de-escalate things. Uh, literally every day I'm seeing incidences like that. Every week or two, there's an incident where someone is armed with a knife or a bat and our officers de-escalate that situation with very minimal force um, or no force. And those just don't get publicized because no one, you know, doesn't make the news. But that type of work is happening constantly behind the scenes. And so just keep in mind when you do see a video uh, on social media that looks terrible, then there's just thousands upon thousands of other interactions that happened besides that, that went in a different direction. And then also keep in mind the videos never do tell the whole story. And I, I don't want to make any excuses for poor tactics or for excessive force. That's not what I'm saying but we do have to be careful about jumping to conclusions based on a snippet of video that doesn't include the whole circumstances. 
Thank you. I, I wanted to, I had to push on that. Okay, Joanna, your last question. Well, I just wanted to say that uh, I found some real inspiration in what you've been saying in terms of the, the policies that you've put into place and the narratives that you're collecting and the, the deep feeling of trying to understand your community and, and your elements of community. I love your two pillars, the smarter policing and the principal policing. So, so far I've been inspired, but our last question is who or what inspires you? I actually, um, I'm inspired by the, the stuff we just talked about now, the, a lot of the examples that I see when I get a chance and I don't have as much interaction with the, the officers that work the street as anymore. I wish I did. Uh, but when I have those encounters and I hear these stories or read about these incidents that the officers handled so well, I get very inspired um, because um, the, I, I have a, a deep appreciation of what they're going through. When I, when I, for example, when I started, you know, we weren't walking around with body cameras on filming every single thing that we did um, and operate out. Not many people understand what it's like to opt to just go to work in that environment. Can you imagine if all day long while you were a college instructor, you had to have a video camera on recording every right. single thing and every question from a student, right. how you answered it. And it just like, you're trying to do your job with uh, being recorded constantly. So that, uh -huh. that is a level of stress that I don't think people understand <laughs> because sometimes you just might have a little bit of a bad day um, or you might just want a little bit of a break or privacy um, but in this career. There's nowadays everything is just so uh, monitored and recorded that it's just a whole new dynamic that I never worked in before. So I definitely appreciate that with the officers. And when I see the good work that they still do, um, even in the face of a lot of the criticism that we're getting as a profession, some of it, um, I think, fair, some of it not, but the officers are still coming to work and doing this job and doing it well. And for the most part, positive and optimistic um, and so they inspire me to keep going and remind me that the work I'm, I'm doing now is for them it's for the community and it's for the officers to make sure that they can do their jobs um, safely and well uh, and, you know even this work that we're talking about here with reducing violence that that improves officer safety as well right uh -huh. so it's not just making the community safer it's making our own officers safer as well so I get inspired just from the stories I see from my, from my own officers. And now, um, you know, my father was a police officer in Stockton and he retired as a police captain. And now my daughter is a police officer in San Luis Obispo for the past two years. And so this legacy is kind of continuing. Um, and so that's inspiring to me too, just to see that how she's beginning to develop. You've been listening to the Leaders Who Learn podcast produced by Claremont Lincoln University. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. We really appreciate the support. You can check out our graduate degree programs at www.claremontlincoln.edu.